podcast 38 comes to you today from the sofa at Wiggly Wiggler's Lower Blakemere Farm in Herefordshire. And I'm joined this week not by Ricardo, who is busy organising his party, which I hear includes wrestlers, wrestling outfits, Muzak, and much more up on a hill. I'm joined today by Sam and Farmer Phil. Bit quicker, darlings, bit quicker. (laughs) We're going to have a chat about the countryside, natural gardening and farming. Mark Eccleston is coming in to talk about wildlife and trains. He's one of our fantastic photographers in the Wiggly catalogue. And plant of the week this week is toad flax with owl. And of course, we've got Monty's Wormcast. What did you think of last week's? Pretty good. If you missed Monty's Wormcast last week, tune in because it's not him it's Monty Don. Ricardo had the roving reporter M Audio thingamajig with him last week and he got to interview Adam Pascoe, who's probably the most influential UK gardener, him being editor of BBC Gardener's World magazine. And he actually was fundamental in putting together a special natural gardening area at the show. So over to Ricardo first. Let's get him out of the way. We're recording. It's, I know we've met before. It's nice to see you again. Lovely I, to see you. If I could ask you to introduce yourself, okay, that'd be great. It's uh, Adam Pascoe here from BBC Gardens World magazine. Excellent. Now, I know you play a pivotal role in the uh, in, in all the goings on at the NEC BBC Gardens World live show. Behind the scenes, that's one of my roles. Yeah, ever since the show started, literally before the show started, I've played a part in trying to find the venue for Gardens World Live, which we chose on the National Exhibition Centre here at the NEC, and also every single year of the show up to this year the 14th show I work behind the scenes really my role is on the creative side I am trying to think of the themes and ideas and events and features which are going to bring the public in and also then find ideas and roles for the BBC Gunner celebrities and more recently the celebrity chefs and cooks as well who are bringing to the show right okay fantastic now um, I should ask you we came last year this was my first show at the NEC last year Obviously, I haven't been in, in Post of Wiggly's longer than that. And I, I thought the NEC last year was fantastic, but not quite on the same level as Chelsea. However, I've noticed that things have improved considerably this year, and I, I think that it's still not quite on a par. You know, Chelsea's slightly more sophisticated, but in your not-so-humble opinion, how do you think things have changed from this year compared to last? This is a different show to Chelsea. Chelsea is probably the pinnacle, globally, yeah. of the horticultural shows. The effort the care and attention, the details and the budgets that are needed at Chelsea are superb. A Chelsea flower show garden, now people are talking of upwards of three or four hundred thousand pounds to create a garden there. Garners World Live is in a different league. I like to say that Garners World Live is different in a number of ways. One is really accessible. More of the ideas here are achievable for your average gardener. And I think this is about a gardener's day out rather than a tourist day out. Lots of the people go to Chelsea because it's part of the London scene. Here we rub shoulders with real gardeners looking for plants. They've got an idea, a part of the garden they want to transform, things that they want to put in there, or they come along with gardening problems. And they're shopping. They're looking for things which they can take home and really help their little back garden 
or their big back garden right. become a, a more tranquil place. Absolutely, very eloquently put. And I should ask you, just to finish, what do you think of the Wiggly Garden this year? Love the Wiggly Garden. I'm a great fan of anything which is going to help people, one, create gardens which will bring in wildlife, understand habitats and understand the part that plants have got to play in that, but also look at ways that they can recycle effectively at home and reuse right. their recycled products at home. And I think the Wiggly Garden does all of that. You know, we've all got to be doing much, much more to recycle the waste that we're producing at home and composting, effective composting, and Wigglies have got lots of solutions to that, is really the way forward. You're absolutely right. Wise words. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank Cheers. you. Son, you're looking a bit tired. Just a little. And the thing is, the night before last, you phoned me up, which seemed to me in the middle of the night, so it's probably about 10 o'clock-ish, yeah, yeah. And said, I'm hearing voices, noises. A bit of a stretch. The question was, what does a baby owl sound like? That's right. And you came out with, is it a Twitter-woo? <laughs> anyway, that's not a little owl, we found out. Well, no, it, well, no. it could be a baby owl, but that's a tawny owl goes, But these owls, we decided to come up with a plan, didn't we? So what did you yes. take home last night? Well, what's happened is we're getting noises in the middle of the night, which are keeping us awake. <laughs> Hence the tired look. So, have equipped us with the M-Audio thingy, as she refers to it. And off we were to record the sounds in the middle of the night to then get an identification by Heather in the morning. Or Ricardo, but he's, but he's not, not here. here. So we'll have to put up with Heather. And so here we go over to Alex, mm. who's prowling around in the middle of the night just outside Bungalow Boulevard in Preston on Y. Listen carefully. OK, Wiggly team. Let's see if you can uh, solve the mystery of these uh, sounds we're getting late at night. This is the third night on the trot now that San and I have had these gawkins sound outside our window. Typical, third night, Sandra's sound asleep, snoring away, you can probably hear her upstairs. I'm the one taking the wander outside just to see if we can record these sounds. So bear with me just a minute. It'd be typical if I scare them off. Well, hopefully that's picked up enough. They seem to have moved away a little bit. I think they're bats. Sandra thinks they're owls. I think she's got a bit of inside information. But uh, if you can help us out, let us know. Bye. I feel it only fair, as Alex isn't here, that I should defend myself against the snoring issue. One, I'm sure I don't snore. Of course not. No. (laughs) But I was still awake. Really? Ever so slightly. And I did manage to hear him twittering about 
how they're on the apex of the roof and you can see them. Mm -hmm. So, not quite snoring yet. And to Mr Britas from me, because Alex is, in actual fact, manager of the world's best leisure centre, (laughs) Hereford, I can only say to him, if only he'd taken more notice on the trip to Cornwall that he and I had last year when I started off with my Jeff Sample CD and he went to sleep on Blackbird. Tweet, 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 tweet. Number five. Absolutely. And when he woke up, it was number 97, I think. Something like that. Yeah. And had he only listened, he would have heard Little Owl because what did I identify those screeches with? My Jeff Sample CD on iTunes. So, we think it's a Little Owl. We're not totally sure because Ricardo's not here. Hmm. But Quietly confident. We have used technology in the form of a mic and a phone and we've played it over to Jenny Steele. <laughs> <laughs> she said it could be a small tawny but it sounds much more like a little owl. So if anyone knows different then you must email in and you must send us your audios of your own owls to prove that you have a different owl. Wouldn't that be fun if you sent us in your audio files of owls and we could then have different sorts on the show? You could also attach a picture of yourself to show how much sleep deprivation you're going through. Yes, that'd be good. How deep of your, the, uh, the lines under your eyes? Anyway, I got some facts on little owls, haven't I? They were reintroduced into the UK from Holland in 1888, which was mm-hmm. my grand's birth year. They hunt at dawn and dusk and they eat things like mice, voles, shrews, even little rabbits. That'll be handy for the sunflowers because you're right by the sunflowers and the rabbits are eating the sunflowers. As well as insects, earthworms, snails, slugs and small fish. They nest in tree holes, pollarded willows, walls of old buildings, rabbit burrows and cliff holes. Do you know where yours are nesting then, Sam? I don't. I'm wondering if it's in one of the old barns down the road at Tony Dales. Ah, could be. That's the direction they fly off at. But the key thing that we found out, bearing in mind today is right at the end of June, that the female lays three to five eggs in early May and she incubates the eggs for 29 days. The male feeds the chicks at first and then later the female helps. After 26 days, the chicks leave the nest. And that's where we think they've come from and landed on our apex. And I think they're slightly confused, possibly a bit upset. And that's what the squawking is right from beginning of night to the morning. Jenny said that the adults will still be feeding the chicks even though they've left the nest. Ah. I wonder if they prefer bungalows to... um, Houses. Perhaps have got a bit of a height. Fear. Fear of heights. <laughs> Could be that. Anyway, they're not under threat. There's 9,000 pairs in the UK. And the little owl is the true bird behind the phrase wise old owl. This is because of its link with the goddess Athene who represented victory and divine wisdom. There you go, see? You can only get this info on the Wiggly <laughs> podcast. But if you want to know more... Go to the RSPB website where we've been this morning watching a video clip of little owls and hearing an audio file. So rspb.org. So thank you, Sam and Mr. Britas, Alex. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. And now on the sofa we have Al. Hello. And Mark Eccleston, who is our fab, fab, fab photographer. Hello there. How you doing? Lovely. Thank you. 
Thank you both for coming. Now, just while Richard's not here, I thought it'd be rather fun to get out his feedback forms from yesterday's course so that we could all see them before he did. Um, <laughs> so yesterday he, he held a course, he had a lovely day and, well I don't know if he had a lovely day, but it was certainly a lovely day in terms of weather and I know Farmer Phil and you got to talk to them. What was your subject matter about? My subject matter is wildflowers and what the effect on them of my farming activities is. Oh dear. How that might relate to how you deal with them in the garden situation. And it was interesting because fertility is the main controller of whether wildflowers succeed or not. So if it's too fertile, the cultivated species like grasses and some of the more common weeds like docks will flourish and the wildflowers get swamped out. Is that true, huh? Yeah, it's absolutely true, yeah, because if the grasses grow um, too vigorously, uh, then the wildflowers can't come through, and they just stay dormant in the soil for years and years. So it's not so much that, well, it's more that the actual crop's forcing them out than anything else? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Is that why the moment that you have a chance, those poppies just come back all the time? Yeah, loads of poppies around this year. There are. Okay, so, everyone got your form, Russell, Russell. (laughs) And we'll pick out any crunchy points, so good or bad, doesn't matter. But uh, this is the first time he will have seen them. Ow. Yep, on one of the questions it says, have you learned what you hope to learn, and if so, what? And someone's replied, to get ideas for a residential home, to establish a wildlife garden in the shade, a therapeutic environment. Very nice. Phil? Well, I, I obviously was looking for criticism of Ricardo. Yeah. And uh, my sheet has got straight excellence all the way down the page, which is very disappointing. Uh. But the comment that is of closest to my heart was that the lunch was excellent and the cake was particularly <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> they had fruit cake yesterday. Mark? I was going to pick on the same point there, because I think whenever I go on a course, I always think they've got good butties and it's a good course, I think. And um, I'm not sure whether they're talking about Ricardo here or the the refreshments, but it says plentiful and very nutritious. (laughs) (laughs) Mine says, Richard is the best-looking guy that I've ever met. Um, Signed, Mrs Fishbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Only joking. Right, onward, onward. Ow. Sam came in with a mystery and we solved it. It was Little Owl, we think, and that's keeping her awake at night. And you said to me that you've got another mystery, which we can't solve this week, but we can solve next week. Tell us all about it. Yeah, it's um, on the banks of the River Wye. Uh, there's all the um, willow trees growing along, along it. And on most of the trees, actually, there's like huge cobwebs all over the tree. And some of them are f- totally filled with caterpillars. And this one, it must be like two foot across, a nest, just totally crammed full of caterpillars hanging from the tree. Totally amazing. Have you ever seen it before? Not as big as that, no, not those nests like that. Got any I've idea? seen a few cobwebs over it, but it's, um, I looked on the web and I think it might be when an ermine moth. Oh. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I think it must be a good year for spiders because my cleaning plant has just got cobwebs instantly everywhere. And then the little tiny spiders, nondescript looking, but there's just gossamer all over the place. Yeah. Any clues, Mark? No, I think she's right with the moth, because on the way down here, you see all the hedges all bare where they've just stripped it of, of leaves. Really? So we think it might be the ermine moth? Yeah, if you took a picture of it, it'd be fab <laughs> photo, because it's huge. It's a great big, you know, nest of caterpillars hanging from a tree. Well, 
we are going to send Richard Ricardo, the roving reporter, on his way to Owls to find out what this is. Brilliant. But if you know, let us know. You can email heather at, heather at uk, or you can go to my blog at wigglywigglers.blogspot.com or you can email farmerphil, pwg at lowerblakemere.co.uk or alison, alison at wigglywigglers.co.uk or if you really want the expert, <sighs> richard at wigglywigglers.co.uk And straight to plant of the week, toad flax. Ow. Yeah, here we have toad flax. Um, it flowers between June to October. It's a lovely little flower, it resembles a... Um, a tiny snapdragon or anti-rhinum. Uh, it's a yellow in colour with a deep orange centre. Uh, it's found on um, wasteland and well-drained soil. It's really beautiful, isn't it? It's got leaves all the way up the stem. Yeah, it is quite a delicate plant, but once it's established, it will spread, but not vigorously. It has rhizomes that come out from the bottom and it will just spread along banks and open pasture. You know um, what? In Utah, it's bad. It's bad? Mm, yeah, Why they it call bad? it a weed in Utah. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look much like a toad owl. Why is it called toad flax? Uh, well, the Latin name's Linearia vulgaris, and the linear bit um, comes from the flax. Um, you've got some more ideas and you have one. Here we are on the web. William Cole, 1626 to 1662, believed the plant was called toad flax because toads sometimes sheltered themselves among the branches of it. Hmm. Other names include butter and eggs. You can see why, because the outside of the flower is a buttery colour and the middle looks like a yolk of an egg, so that's easy. Eggs and bacon. I don't know why that would be. Brideweed. Dragon bushes. Yellow rod, devil's ribbon, devil's head, peddler's basket, and just toad. <laughs> I don't know. They always had hundreds of names for these things, but we think we've stuck on toad flax this time. It's pollinated by a range of bees and bumblebees, but sometimes they, they find it difficult to get the pollen because they are such a tiny little flower. So sometimes they'll actually bite the base of this little flower to get the nectar out. And it looks like a funnel. So yeah, that would make complete short, sense. Right funnel. at the back, it goes into a yeah. funnel, into a really sharp point. So they could get it out of the back of the flower. Is that yeah, what you mean? Yeah, it's quite clever, isn't it? The way yeah. you do that. Mark, you, have you ever taken any pictures of bees on toad flax or toad flax on its own? I've got plenty of pictures of uh, toad flax on its own. I've never managed to get one with the bee on it yet. Uh, we need a small bee, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we need yeah. to get one from, uh, I think, Bee and Q do then. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, he's as balmy as us. Um, <laughs> being cute, get it? <laughs> but where have you taken the pictures of toad flax that you've got? At my work. I work in a signal box um, on the Shrewsbury to Crew line and um, I've turned the, the side of the banks into um, wildflower meadows. Wow! As such, and uh, amongst all the flowers there. Is this normal for British Rail signalmen to turn the I banks of the <laughs> railway into wildflowers? I don't think it's normal. No, there's not, uh, it's not that many of us who do it, but I think it's catching on and it certainly makes a nice colourful sort of uh, display for people waiting at, at the barriers. It's because they're crossing there. So. You do still make sure that the, the things are going up and down, don't you? Oh, the thing, yeah. The things are definitely going up and down, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so what have you done and how have you planted that up and you know, how all big right. an area? All right. It started off about uh, four years ago. It was all overgrown, full of bits of railway stuff and lots of Japanese nutweed was there. So I've been digging that out. I just, it's still there and just keep pulling it out sort of thing. And this is how I got to, got to know you really because uh, the Wildlife Trust put me on to Rob. 
uh, Rob uh, from Forrester, yeah. who did the Rob cast. That's it, the Rob. <laughs> Rob the Rob or the Rob cast, yeah. And he obviously put me in touch with you. But I got all my flowers from him. Yeah. The, for the plugs, and over time I've planted it up and I've put seeds in as well. And it's about uh, 100 metres or something on one side, and, and the same on the other, but it goes, it's quite deep, it's on the bank. And the, the two sides are completely different. You've got the same flowers in, but one comes before the other one, and the other ones do better on one side and not on the other side. Wow. But it's, it's absolutely chock a block with all of our flowers, and it's, uh, we have loads of birds there and insects I'd never seen before. But... And is that what inspired your photography hobby, or was it the other way around? The other way around, I, I started getting into photography and then as this has got better and um, things have been attracted to it, it's sort of like my doorstep, so I can go out amongst them all and do my stuff there. Like. What the heck do British Rail think about it? They're quite keen on it, so they were giving me um, money each year to buy the, the plugs and they're starting to now use it because they're quite big on the um, the environment, aren't they? So the, the, now they see this, so they're starting to use it for various things. Wonderful. And do you get any comments from people on the train? You know, Do you get any... Uh Waves. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've seen. I mean, they might shout things, but I've never actually heard it. But <laughs> but I, I have met people in various places, and and, they, and when I tell them where I work and that, and they say, "Oh, you're the one with all the flowers." There. So people are, do notice it, sort of thing. Because I've hanging baskets there as well and stuff like that. So. Hanging baskets. Mm-hmm. Wow. What have you got in those then, Mark? Oh, but unfortunately, they're just uh, not wildflowers or, or strawberries, but um, just normal garden flowers, just to give it a bit of colour, really. I bet you're going to put strawberries in them now. Well, now you've mentioned it, so you can't resist a strawberry nipple, can you? So it, uh, I shall be putting them in there next year, yeah. Fantastic. So, Mark, where can people see these wonderful wildflowers, whether they're on the train or whether they're at the crossing in their car? Right, my box is called Halscott Crossing. It's on Halscott Lane, which is in Shrewsbury. It's on the Shrewsbury to Crew Line. Fantastic. So give Mark a wave, and if you get a chance to tell him what you think of his flowers, maybe email him. <laughs> at dragonsanddamsels at fsmail.net And... Mark has done us the most beautiful set of photos that um, will be up on our web at some time in the future and in our autumn catalogue. But we're going to have a chat about each one and make it into photo of the week to find out where and how Mark's got the photo. So that'll be coming up shortly in an episode soon from Wiggly Wigglers. From trains to tractors. That's a hev link now Richard isn't here. Phil, tell us what you've been up to this week, because it's a good one. It is a good one. I've been taking a bit of stick this week. As everybody knows, it's been dry for weeks and weeks and weeks, torrid sunshine. So farmer Phil mows his silage and manages to get it wet. Oh dear. It is now drying out, and hopefully we'll bale it up tomorrow. Now, silage is always one of those mysteries, isn't it? What is the difference between silage and hay? Both things aim to preserve the grass and the nutrients in the grass for the cattle or sheep to eat during the winter but they do it by different means so hay is probably the easiest you just dry it out until it preserves itself it just becomes a dried product and you bale it up dry and if you've got it dry enough it'll store for a long period of time perfectly happily silage you bale it or ensile it wetter and the naturally occurring bacteria within the grass then ferment in the anaerobic conditions that you put it in so that you seal it in a clamp or a bag or wrap it up so there's no air and under those conditions it will then ferment which is a bit like brewing beer or fermenting yeast or bokashi. So which is best, you know, which are we going to do? Because everyone seems to make silage these days. 
Whereas when my dad was a boy, you went out and you turned your hay and you had your woofler, which <laughs> I remember the woofler. Do you remember wooflers, yeah, remember Al? Wooflers. Oh, <laughs> uh, for anyone who doesn't know what a woofler is, sorry, that's the farm phone. Go away. A woofler was this wonderful machine that my dad used to make me drive, and it was on the back of a tractor, and it went in circles and woofled all the hay up, and it was just wonderful. And then, after the woofler, you got the acrobat, which seemed to put it back in the pile that it was originally in. Was that it? (laughs) Was that it, Phil? That's exactly right. And then you could add in other names. You had a a laley cock pheasant was another sophisticated piece of machinery for turning your hay over. Oh, I think we called that the scrumper. Oh, you had a crimper probably oh, as yes. well, oh, yeah. um, which is very like a hair crimper. That's all it does. And the idea of these machines all achieve the same thing. They're trying to speed up the drying process and make it even so that if you make a bale with a wet knot of hay in it, it will go wrong from that knot. And the ultimate going wrong is that the whole stack heats up. It catches fire. It'll get hot enough to go up in flames. And, you know, when a lot of hay was made... It was quite common for various barns to go up in flames for that reason. So we hear constantly about climate change and the fact that everything's warmer. So why don't we make as much hay as we did? It takes longer to make and it is more reliant on the weather. So you've got to have a longer period of good weather to make it. And the traditional way of making it was that you'd go out and mow a little bit every day, turn a little bit every day and perhaps bale a bit every day so that your haymaking would last for weeks on end, but you only ever risked a small percentage of the crop. Whereas nowadays we tend to say, right, hay crop, mow it all down one day, turn it all every day, so if it goes wrong you lose the whole lot. You've industrialised it again, haven't you? A little bit, but the advantage of silage is that it's shorter and it's less critical. You You can survive it getting a bit of rain on it and it doesn't need to be as dry when you bale it. Don't you remember, Al, the smell of new-mown hay? Yeah, we still make quite a lot of hay because, we obviously, Farmer Phil hasn't got any sheep, so we've got a fair amount of sheep, so we feed um, Why do hay. sheep prefer hay, then? Yeah, sheep always get fed hay during the winter months. And, of course, the horse, she eats quite a lot, too. So is hay best to eat, you know, if you're a... Traditionally, traditionally hay is considered the best stuff, but it's interesting because silage is much easier to achieve a consistent quality with no dust and there are an increasing number of racehorses particularly being fed quite dry silage called haylage because it's consistent and there's no dust in it so you don't get any of the respiratory problems with hay there's a little bit of a lottery as to whether you're going to get it dust free or not and obviously you know if you're trying to produce a top quality racehorse or top quality livestock you don't want that variability. But I remember discussing the fact that there's going to be a lack of mould control due to strychnine being banned. And the fact is that if you get soil in your silage, I remember Harriet, my sheep, dying of that. That's right. There's uh, the, the listeria bacteria, which naturally occurs in soil. If you contaminate your silage with it, there is a chance that the animals that you feed the silage to will contract the bacteria. And for sheep, it's not good. Alison would know more than me, but... It's potentially a problem. How do you make sure that your silage is okay? Well, now we can't control moles by killing them. There are two obvious ways of doing it. So don't mow the piece of field that's got any molehills in it. It's better leave it to graze and just take the silage round it or whatever. 
or what I tend to do is because we try and make drier silage so you get it three parts of the way to being hay and then ensile it by turning it the soil will fall out or any soil that is in there will fall out. I'm not actually convinced that that's a terribly efficient way of avoiding contamination but it might reduce it. Um, You can still kill moles you just can't use strychnine. That's right but it's difficult to know how to effectively control them without using some form of poison. But, I mean, this has only just come in this year, so that no doubt we'll come up with some more ideas. So will you be making any hay this year as well as silage? Yep, we've got about 100 acres of hay to make a little bit later on next month. The idea is that we graze those fields at turnout in the spring and then cut them for hay later on, hopefully when the weather's more guaranteed and we'll have a lighter crop so it's easier to make, so you don't have huge amounts of grass to turn it's thinner and therefore it dries out better so we can make a higher quality Big product. bales or small bales? Big bales. We've got a number of customers who are, are getting used to the idea of big bales and basically it's not that we're lazy, it's just that it's difficult to find enough people who are willing to haul that many bales. <laughs> just a minute, Al, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's been several years since I've yes. seen old Phil handling the small bale. The bale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, Al? When will you be making your hay? Um, well, we've made quite a lot already um, into big bales, although there was a discussion with the neighbours turning 500 little bales, and uh, my brother's going, who's going to haul them? <laughs> and they, really? They couldn't get anybody to like, haul them, so Dad was like, we're making some big bales. Best thing. <laughs> yeah. I- I would like to add, Al, that the last time we made small bales, which was some years ago now, we baled carted and stacked just over 35,000 of them. So that... Several years ago. In fact, I think they had about 37 students on the farm. Yeah, those were the days. (laughs) There were four of us. (laughs) Those were the days where my granddad used to do it and he used to have a a glass of cider under the hedge halfway through. (laughs) I can't say too much about that because father never knew about that. Okay, well, um, so when is the moment that you bale the silage? Tomorrow morning, the silage gets baled and then we'll wrap it up in black polythene as soon as we can after we've baled it and stack it up ready for the winter. How many bales will you have made? We will have made around 400. And how many cows will that feed? That's a very good question. Um, That would probably feed 20 cows a bale a day. That's a lot. Wow. Well, good luck with your baling, Phil. And we'll go straight on to Monty, the real Monty's back, Monty's Wormcast for this week. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty, a weekly fact on worms. In Australia, Aborigines use the oily fluid from worms to cure rheumatism. Just before we go, we've got an email in from Jan. Al, read it out and describe the picky. Yeah, it says, Dear Heather, I've just ordered some more live mealworms for our friendly Robin. This is a photo of my husband Paul feeding Dad, who in turn feeds his three babies. <laughs> if we don't offer the mealworms, the Robin comes looking for them. I have more photos if you're interested. Kind regards, Jan. And there's a picture of Paul sat with a little mealworm feeding dish with a Robin eating them out of his hand. It's lovely, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, totally gorgeous. Okay, Thanks, everyone, for coming in today. It's bye from the Wiggly Sofa from me, Heather. And me, Alison. And me, Farmer Phil. And me, Mark. Hooray! Another (laughs) one's in the can. Bye. Bye. I'll ask him. 
Phil, what is the difference between silage and hay? Well, silage is a means of conserving grass for feeding to the cattle or horses or sheep in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. And Hay's a little market town just up the road where we had a garden a month ago. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Give up. Yeah.